0: Price of Football, superb podcast. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, and Marty Webb, Run Pod Option. If anybody likes college football, uh, another great podcast to, to take a listen to. Um, the last two kind of season wrap ups, I've tried to get uh, a US fan and a UK based fan. And you two are definitely the biggest names to date. So thank you for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so thank you for having I, us. <laughs> I guess the first question I want to ask uh, to both of you. Um, is there was a lot of movement in the summer with Houghton, out, Potter in, a whole change of staff. Um, what did you hope to see coming into that first, you know, August Watford away? What were your hopes and dreams <laughs> that that very first month, and what were they? Were they, you know, were those expectations expectations met in what is now ridiculously July twenty seventh?
1: Um. I was hoping for a change of philosophy of play. Um, Chris was Chris was the pragmatist, uh, and he did a great job in keeping us up, and that should never be forgotten. Uh, watching the football, and you know, I go home in a way, so it was was tough at times. Uh, it, it was it was enjoyment rather than enjoyment, uh, and we were grinding out results. Uh, Graham Potter came with a fairly good. Uh, reputation in in terms of playing possession-based football so uh, I mean I was fortunate enough to go to Watford Uh, I had a ticket and uh, I've got to say that first match absolutely blew me away Uh, so uh, it it was a case of possible uh, I I became an instant convert similar to me
2: Kieran uh, rather similar to Kieran I was looking for something that wasn't Uten ball. As much as it was nice hanging on, it did feel like we were hanging on. And at the end of that 18-19 season that we weren't really attacking, we were just surviving for dear life. So even though towards the end of the season in July, we were still trying to hold on and make sure we weren't going to get into that relegation drop zone, the philosophy and the movement of the ball is what I expected. And if you remember, Kieran, as well, on that Watford game, and I know, Josh, you too, every pass seemed to be a bullet. And it was just bouncing off people's feet, and it looked like a very direct style of passing. And it was kind of a sign of things to come once people got a hold of the system, a hold of the movements and everything. So after what I saw in that first Watford match, I'd say my expectations were absolutely met because there were very few times it felt like the team downshifted this season, whereas the year prior with Uten and holding on, it felt like it was entirely a downshift and just praying that the other team wouldn't wouldn't see the cracks in the foundation, I guess.
0: Yeah, I, so I felt pretty much exactly the same as you two, and I, I think every Albion fan listening can probably have an agreement with all of us, really, that if we're going to get rid of Chris and get in somebody new, then let's just turn the whole thing upside down and, and play a style of football that's different. Um, and kind of, I've seen a lot of people say that this was more of an evolution than a revolution. And I think that they're, they're spot on. Um, I think that for me, I wanted to see the same thing. I wanted to see something different, something more expansive um, and not just trying to survive as well. Um, and after that Watford game, and even just the first couple of games, there was there was a lot of reasons for hope. I mean, even losing to Southampton the way we did, we, we were a team that arguably could have beat them with ten men if we'd have just finished a little bit better, which I feels like was the entire commentary of our season. If our finishing was a bit better, we we wouldn't have been in the situation we were at the end. Um so yeah, I think that I think I agree with both of you. I think that the expectations were, were pretty much met. Um I haven't done a Burnley recap yet. So if did either of you manage to catch the Burnley game yesterday, I, I watched the whole thing and it was pretty entertaining for what was a game that meant absolutely nothing, because uh, you never know whether both teams are going to be on the beach or whether they're going to be actually wanting to play some football. And it looked to me like that may well be the uh, a, a glimpse into the next chapter of, of what we might see under Potter. Kieran, did you manage to catch a look at that? Yeah,
1: yeah, I watched the whole game. Um, I I thought it, it was it, it was an okay game. It was certainly a lot better than Newcastle, um, <laughs> which was which is not one for the memory banks. Um, yeah, I thought I thought we looked good in good at times. Uh, I'm I'm still very twitchy every time we're defending a set piece. Uh, we've we've conceded far too many this season. Uh, given that you look at our defence, you think oh, that that's quite a tall bunch. Okay, you know, uh, Lamptey, uh, excluded. Um. But yeah, yeah, I, there was uh, there was a lot to be positive about, and uh, the the age of the team seems to be coming down, um, and there's 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 prospects of people coming through as well. So yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it, um, especially when the Burnley equaliser was disallowed for VAR purposes.
2: Yeah, it was nice to be on the right side of that VAR decision on the goal, I'll say that much. It was I thought the game was a lot of fun, if nothing else, because it kind of to your last question, it was kind of a complete youth movement and really seeing Burnley was not very they weren't defending very well either, but seeing what that offense could do under Potter's tutelage.
0: So speaking of goals, um MVAR. VAR, uh, this isn't on the question list, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Next season, do you do you want to keep VAR? Do you want to get rid of VAR? Do you want to evolve VAR? Um, what are your kind of thoughts, feelings behind that off the cuff? Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm pro-VAR. Pro um, I, I, it, it did take some acclimatization. Um, it, it, it seems to have evolved into more of an umpire's call uh, way of giving decisions than than. Than, than we had at the start of the season. I, mean, I think a good example of that was when we, uh, when we awarded the penalty against Everton, uh, which, which was a very, very generous decision. Uh, and there's no way that a referee would have given it from, from where he was standing. And, and, and I think now it is very much has the referee made a, a glaring error. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in favor because it should help clubs who aren't the elite uh, because referees are under pressure from uh, fr- from the bigger clubs, and, and this gives us an opportunity to uh, look at things in a more objective manner.
2: I agree. I'm I'm pro VAR and taking kind of the American look at it. When instant replay came through with the NFL, there were more problems that presented in the first couple of years than they initially thought. So it was a very much a growing process. With the Premier League, you have, obviously, the relegation. So those mistakes can cost a lot of money. Kieran can speak to that. <laughs> it can cost money for actual clubs going down based on a VAR result. So I'm pro-VAR, and I'm just trying to be patient so that it's not simply our recovering the referee's call. But are we making a fair neutral judgment on a play with a set style of guidelines? We had a VAR goal called, we had a goal called back by VAR when it was the an offsides, and I believe there were six or seven more touches before we scored the goal. And then that didn't happen. I'm believing it's Manchester United in a similar scenario. So it seems pretty unbalanced. I'm pro VAR, hoping that it's going to get better too.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's got to continue to evolve. Um, It's my, I think my only thing that I would like to see evolved in it is maybe uh, a change of who is in the VAR route. Um, Like having referees, ref referees, it feels a little bit like protecting their own at times on occasion. Um, And I don't know if there'd be a way of getting some kind of impartiality in there, of not referees. Um, But past that, I think the same thing. I mean, you look at the stats. I think I read yesterday. I think Brighton are one of the biggest uh, benefactors. I think we've had ten VAR decisions um, that have come for us, which then kind of shows just how many decisions referees are not quite getting spot on on the day that are saving us. So, I think I think it's it's definitely grown. It's evolved. It's got better, and I think it probably will continue to. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think I'm on on board with both of you. I think VAR is probably here to stay. Uh, I think it will continue to grow and and get better as we go along because it's it's wild to think that it's only the first season. I feel like we've been talking about it for 8 years now because <laughs> of how long this season's been. Um but talking of goals, uh Brighton just actually released their own goal of the season montage. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but there's some absolute bangers in there. Um so Marty, what is uh what was your goal of the season? Was the was the one that stood out to you?
2: Yeah, I flip flopped on this a couple of times because you sent me this video actually, and I had a different goal in mind, but I switched to Aaron Connolly's second goal against Spurs on October 5th. He had a fantastic first touch when the ball came down, tipped it with his head, kept going, cut inside, and hit the far post, and it was a uh, I would say it was a sign of things to come but it took him a long time to get that third goal but it was still extremely exciting him for his debut to score not only two goals but that second one being such a, a beautiful one.
1: For me, uh Leandro Trossard against Liverpool, I think is a, a team goal um and the way that he took it as well. Uh that that was the that that was possible for me. Encapsulated in ten seconds, yeah. That's what we recruited Graham for distribution with uh, attacking fullbacks. and I, and I thought the finish was sublime as well. Uh, he he caught it superbly. Uh, a, a big shout out for uh, Besuma's goal yesterday as well against uh, Burnley. I, th- I think if that had taken place in front of a uh, a crowd, yeah, we we would have been going berserk.
0: Yeah, agreed. <laughs> um, do we all agree that it's likely that uh, Ali Raisa's goal is going to win it, though? Um, I, I, I suspect it will
1: win it, but it's one of those which you know it. It, it sounds terrible. It, it, there's an element of hidden hope about it because he tried exactly the same thing the following week against Sheffield Wednesday, um, and it nearly hit me in the North. Stand. <laughs> so
0: You're not wrong. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I think I would...
2: Should... Go ahead, Josh, I'm sorry. No, you go. I was going to say, I would say it probably has a good chance of winning it until the Mopé score against Arsenal after the restart, and going from McAllister to Conley to Mopé, and it was just so smooth and... For me, it's the highest I've jumped out of my couch all season and I scared my wife, daughter and two dogs in the process (laughs) because it was it was I'm getting chills talking about it. So I think that's probably going to end up edging it out, despite at the time it being a fantastic
0: goal. Yeah, I think I think for me. Uh, and it's a similar reason for, for Kieran, too. I feel like it was it was a perfect encapsulation of what potable can be. And mine was the Trossard slash uh, Dinia winner against Everton to win 3-2. And that counterattack from all the way from Ryan up to Trossard squaring that ball in was, for me, similar to the way you said, Kieran, like potable in action. It was exactly the kind of, like, brutal counter-attack that you saw him do with Ostersunds against teams like Arsenal and Galatasaray. And he went and did it with, you know, seconds to go against Everton. And I think that one, for me, stood out as one of those, like, holy crap, like, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was something that you're not going to see very often. But I think he's been trying to replicate that kind of counter-attack in the last couple of weeks when we've had to get slightly more pragmatic um, in defending especially away from home. And, and I think it showed with that seven unbeaten away from home, which is kind of unbelievable when, I mean, Kieran, you can say it more than anything. You were there, like the away form under Hewton was just horrific. Like West Brom away. And a couple of others were just bruising.
1: <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. I'd managed to forget about West Brom away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it was so bad. I was watching it on the TV, let alone being there.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think we are, uh, we are a work in progress, but uh, you know, some of those goals were, were great team goals. Uh, You know, Ali's was a great individual goal. Um, You know, I I agree with Marty with, with regards to Aaron Connolly, Uh, Aaron Moy's goal against Bournemouth, I think it was, was a superb piece of skill from two or three players. And the fact that we're getting those touches linking together. And we've got to remember, we are Brighton-Hove Albion. We're not Real Madrid. We're not Barcelona. We're not Liverpool or Manchester City. And their fans get to see that practically all season. But to see some of those issues, know, the way that we scored goals, which were a combination of great elements of skill, was very encouraging.
0: Agreed um so moving on from goal of the season i guess that the natural evolution is uh your player of the season this one this one played with me for a while i i had three in mind so i'm interested to see who you two earmarked as your player of the season and why who uh who stood out for you
1: should i go first yeah go for yeah, it okay. i'm sorry <laughs> um, oh sorry for me uh lewis dunk uh, I felt he was a captain in so many ways this season. Uh, he he put his body on the line. He uh, he, he led from the front. His ball distribution was uh, was far better. His decision making in defence was better as well. Uh, he he was caught out on on a couple of occasions. I mean, yesterday was one. I think we he misjudged the ball to let Wood score. And yeah, you know, I, I think when. Greenwood scored United's first goal. He, he, he sort of let himself get slightly adrift. But uh, in the main, I think he's been superb. He has been Mr. Dependable. And uh, he's, uh, he's, he's scored one or two goals himself. So, yeah, for me, it was the perfect package. I, I, I struggled to find anybody really to compete with him. I think Neil Mope would probably be my closest uh, in terms of I, I love the way that he plays because he's he's a player who the opposition love to hate uh, in in more ways than one especially if you're you're arsenal um he's sort of a, a bit like a a cut down version of craig bellamy in that he's he he irritates the, the opponents That's you know, such he, a
0: good shout
1: <laughs> um and he never gives up
0: For me, I love it you're right on craig bellamy i never even thought about it but now i'm thinking about it like that's a that's a great comparison
2: so i'm newer to brighton right just kind of putting that disclaimer out here and as far as the premier league goes i watched some other matches but it's brighton matches and maybe two handfuls so there's there's not a whole lot of players that most players that come through surprise me when they get signed up because I haven't heard of them or I haven't seen them with those teams. So I want to put that disclaimer out here. Dan Byrne, the audacity of that dude to be that tall and to have that kind of a first touch, he almost every match he'd have a touch that I would just kind of shake my head and think this doesn't even make sense. <laughs> like it just, it seems weird. And Just speaking to kind of versatility, he was effective on offense. He was great on defense. He had the most aerial battles won. He was second behind dunk on clearances, second behind Dale Stevens on tackles. And it was kind of a relief knowing on defense when the opposing team would come up from the left side and they tried to switch it over to the right side knowing Dan Byrne was over there it almost never got completed because he was so tall and was in the right position so Byrne I'm using as my player this season but he was kind of the surprise of the season for me from a player perspective he was a lot of fun to watch every match he
0: was in yeah I think it's a fair shout I think for me I'm, I'm the same as Kieran lewis dunk for me was was my player of the season i thought he was exactly the way he said he was captain uh, in so many ways i think you know with bruno stepping back especially we needed somebody to come forward and lead and he was always the obvious candidate so it's nice to see a he stayed with us regardless of whatever rumors there are every single year um and the fact that he then went on to to do what he did um, you know, it started that very first game with that unbelievable pass to Mopai to so just cut through the entire Watford team. Um, probably should have been a, a, you know, a glimpse of things to come for them, unfortunately. But we were, I thought he was just superb. The, the free kick against Liverpool was just uh, encapsulated the the kind of courage he can show sometimes. Um, and for me, I think that the only two that did come into my conversation were, were Burn and Mopai. So I think that we're all, in a pretty similar situation on uh, our thoughts and feelings on that. Um, speaking of debut players, Burn, Trossard, Connolly, uh, Alexis McAllister, Lamptey, um, what were your feelings on those, on the, that group of people? Were there anybody that uh, stood out as kind of a great signing or a great addition or, and, and likewise, was there somebody who, you saw signed or brought in from the youth product or brought back from loan that you thought may well do more than than they thought they would, Kieran? Um I, I think
1: Tarek Lamptey has been the wow factor since since lockdown. Uh he, he's looked superb as as a new signing. Trossard started off and everybody was getting everybody was salivating and he I think it's fair to say he's a dip in form. The same with Connolly Dan Burns has been very dependable that's that's why he's he's pushed uh, Bernardo out and i think that surprised a lot of people um yeah in in general i think we've had more hits than misses um adam webster started hesitantly but again since lockdown he he's looked better and better so you you put all of those together and then, remember you got steve alzate as well who's who's not been playing because i think he's he's uh, due a uh, due some form of operation, um, and the the recruitment has been good, if not spectacular. Uh, Neil Mope is a debut player as well. You know, for, to to never have played in the Premier League and and to get into double figures the way he has done, uh, all, all all positives. I don't think there's been a there's not really been a stinker of of a signing last in in the past twelve months compared to. The likes of Lacadia, uh, compared to the likes of Jahanbash who you know, uh, uh, everybody wants him to succeed because you talk to anybody around the club, any of the fans who have met him, and he is such a nice guy. But it's just for whatever reason, it hasn't clicked for him. So uh, I, I think you know, Chris's second season in the Premier League, our our signings were uh, more more misses than hits, but this year. Uh, you've got to give the recruitment department uh, a lot of credit for what they've done.
2: The only person that even comes to mind in a disappointment for a debut player might be Moy, and that's only because before the lockdown, he seemed to dip significantly versus what he was providing in the first half of the season. He was still a force on, on the pitch, but it did really seem to depend on who was around him versus him doing it on his own. Whereas Troussard, Byrne, McAllister, Lamptey, they were real creators. And if Lampty was playing the entire season, I think he is my player of the year. If that form held, because he truly has been electric with his speed, electric with his coverage on free kicks and how cheeky he was yesterday, nutmegging the other team and just having fun with it. So I'm thrilled with everybody they've brought in, really, because even the slight downturn by Moy, he still plays a role and you'd do far worse at other teams to find your third or fourth midfielder at the level of Moy. That's fair comment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think that there's a lot of players that have come back from the restart and just continued to be, you know, t- turned into a different type of player. Lampy Webster, apparently, yeah, Webster doesn't get as much credit as he deserves, I think, because Lamptey came back so incredibly strong. Um, but I think Moy has dropped off uh, pretty much since he signed the permanent deal. I'm not sure if it's a mentality thing or if it's just a bad dip in form. But he he was not the same kind of influence as he was previously. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think you're, you're right in that this, this year's recruitment has been, uh, much better than the second year. Uh, I, f- I thought our first year of recruitment was excellent, did enough to stay in the premier league pretty comfortably in hindsight. And that second year, uh, whatever our recruitment staff and Houghton were looking for just didn't come off at all. Um, and this year we've managed to, to kind of rectify it. Thankfully. Um, Marty, uh, if we were looking at the end of the season and, and you're, you're part of the recruitment team, uh, what's what do you consider our biggest strength at the end of the season? Where's a spot in the team that you think we're good, we, we don't need to worry about that particular area um, because there's others that we need to?
2: I'd probably start with the keeper in the back line. I feel like we have good depth on the back line behind Matty Ryan, maybe, but he's been... Fantastic, and I think we've got so much variety in the midfield as a strength as well, whether it be Basuma shifting up or down, Dale Stevens staying back, Moy shifting up or down, McAllister, we've only seen a little bit of what he's been able to do, and he seemed very much not on the same page, which makes sense based on the circumstances of him coming over and then never (laughs) not getting in the team and then the lockdown, but I expect him to, to come around to it as well than proper playing his part. So I think central midfield and back line is where I would probably stand if I could keep everybody and focus on other parts of the field.
1: Yes, Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement. You you look at our defence, nobody would have said at the start of the season that uh, Shane Duffy would be a squad player. You know, Shane Shane Duffy personified in many ways all the good things about Chris Hewton. Uh, You know, he was superb for us in the year we were promoted. Uh, He was a towering defender. Uh, Sort of, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember Steve Foster from when we were in the the top flight the first time around. And I felt he was very much sort of that that type of style of they shall not pass defender. Um, and, And it was very brave of Graham Potter to come in and, uh, literally from the start to say, well, he's one of the fans favorites as was Anthony Knockhart, And, um, I'm going to let Anthony go to, to follow him on loan. Um, I'm going to let two other strikers go away on loan who, who were more hit, as we said, you know, Lacadia and, then weren't, uh, weren't over successful. Uh, but to, uh, to let Shane sort of say, you're, you're, you're my third choice center half, um, was, was amazing. Next season, you know, I'm, I've just sort of made a list of players who are going to be under 24. Uh, ben White, uh, Steve Alzate, Lamptey, Connolly, Webster, mope uh, I'm not sure how old Matt Clark is, but I think he's 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 24. So you know, he's we got him coming back from Derby. So so Marty was exactly right that that uh, the, the defence is is looking really solid. Um, and if if you look at clubs who have finished above us this season remember that there's there's a small there's a small club called crystal palace not too far away from us who scored 30 goals all season but still managed to finish above us because they had a good defense well i i i'm quite confident about our defense going forwards. we we do have options and uh we do have flexibility there uh my only fear is that some of them look so good how how do we fit them all in
0: yeah i feel yeah i feel the same way i'm I'm sat here and thinking like well We've got Webster, Dunk, White, like does does Potter go to a back three or does he stay with a back two at times? How's that going to, how are that person missing out going to feel? Um, I think he's going to have a very interesting time having to work out how he's going to handle all these people and that's not even taking into account Dan Byrne unless he decides he's permanent left back. Um, on the other side of things, I, I mean, it sounds like it's going to be quite an obvious answer, but. Uh, where would our transfer recruitment really need to be looking at as this is a, this is a spot that really needs improvement. Um, If defense is, because I agree with you both. I think defensively, I think we're as good as it's going to get for a team at our level for now. Um, In fact, better than that. Actually, I think that we're, we're incredibly good at the back now with that list of players that you both just listed off. Um, So where is the, uh, that you feel is a real weak spot postseason that you would like to see the recruitment team get to work in? Kieran.
1: I think to a degree, we've got a lot of interchangeable figures in midfield without... I would struggle to pick our first choice, any of our first choice midfield players. Uh, Bissouma has looked really good on occasions. Um, and I think certainly he, uh, Graham Potter might choose to develop his midfield around him. Uh, Dale Stevens solid... Makes errors on occasion. I think Davy Propper was one of the few players who went backwards this season for me, uh, and, and I love Davy Proper. Yeah, when he first came, it you know to have a Dutch international playing for the Albion, this is the stuff of dreams as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and he just looks so cool. But his his gate. I don't know whether it's a loss of confidence. I don't know whether ultimately playing him so deep doesn't suit him. But he he didn't have the the greatest of seasons. Solly March again, sort of. Just was putting in five and six out of ten performances. As Marty said, Aaron Moy started well. His form dropped off. The same with Trossard. Uh, you know, tr- so trying to work out our, what our best midfield is, is for me the problem. N- Neil Mope is going to be our main striker going forwards. I think Aaron Connolly is going to be our striker number two. Uh, are we looking for somebody to replace Glenn? I-, I don't know. I don't know whether that fits into... Uh, the manager's philosophy of football.
2: For me, it's basically plus one in what Kieran said. I think Mopé's obviously your striker moving forward. For me, whether it be at the striker position, on the wing, or higher up in the midfield, I feel like, the first thing I'm looking for is the most competent passer that's above maybe 6'2 or 6'3. Someone with just a little bit of height, because we've seen now how many long balls our team is expected to play, which is great. But Connolly's only going to draw so many fouls. Mopey's only going to draw so many fouls. And a bigger body up top. I think maybe the way Gross might have played a couple years ago, you guys can probably speak to it more, but as someone that's up top and can distribute, it's someone I would probably look to focus on more to make sure that Connolly doesn't have to do it by himself or Mope would have to do it by himself.
0: So you're, you're more in the camp that there, there should be a replacement for Glenn in some shape or form.
2: Yeah. I, I think if I could just make Glenn 10 years younger, I think he's the exact kind of person I'd, I'd want in terms of size and even speed. You know, we have, all, we have speed all over the field. Every position doesn't need to be running for three forties. If you just have someone with strength, both both on the attacking to hold the ball up and distribute, but also on your set pieces so that you're not relying so far for Dan Byrne to be the giraffe running back that he is. If we turn the ball over on a corner,
0: I know you're not as familiar with with the man, so I'm not going to put you on the spot, Marty. But Kieran, how do you feel that Adam Lalana plays into this? If he does, uh, as predicted by just about every journalist now, <laughs> sign for the Albion in the coming hours, how does he fit into that into that idea of sorting out what our midfield looks like?
1: Um, I, I see him as the replacement for Stevens or Proper. Uh, one of those two. Uh, we we've got to we, we we've got no idea what Alec uh, you know McAllister is going to be like. Uh, some of his touches have been supply I, I saw his I saw his debut at Wolves when he came on with ten minutes left and everybody got very excited. And clearly, uh, what what he did when he came on against Arsenal uh, when he started matches, he's not quite imposed himself. Uh, Adam Milana I think has the experience of playing. In the Premier League to uh, perhaps push us on a little bit more, uh, but yeah, you know, again he's I think he's 31, so he's he's not going to inject pace. He's uh, I, I guess most people see him as someone in the Stevens role, but perhaps being pushing a little bit more for, forward than than Dale, who uh, has been a superb servant for the club, and I'm sure he's still got plenty to give.
0: Yeah, I think, I think I agree with you. I think he, I think he's looking like he may be a proper replacement. Um, and I, I wonder if one of, you know, Pascal grows, and Moy may well, it, although it would be strange for Moy to go, uh, one of those kind of players leave as well. Cause they all seem to offer the same thing. Um, So I guess there's one that was one spot as well on that weakness uh, that I'd love both your opinions on that stood out to me is that we've slowly but surely eroded the impact of almost any winger in the squad. Uh, Knockout has gone on loan. Uh, Jahan Baksh has never been what we wanted him to be anyway. Um, And we don't really have many wingers. We were kind of led to believe Trossard may well be, but he's not really played much of a, a winger role all season. Um, do you think that we are just evolving away from a, a winger system, and Potter wants to play players that are comfortable pretty much all over that final third, or do you think that they ma- that may well be another weakness that we that we really dive into uh, in the summer? But uh, the question is to both of you. We can start with mine. Okay, I think
2: the the beauty in what Grand Potter seems to be trying to do is the fact that it is so. The system is so moldable. So having a player that can play right wing, left wing, or advanced mid, or striker, that's all fine and great. But it does feel like, yeah, the winger, wingers just aren't being used. And really, the way the system seems to be built, it seems like knocker would actually be a pretty decent fit being able to cut inside with, for instance, Lamptey coming on his, on his shoulder. So... I think for me, it just, I would, God, this is a tricky one. Do you have, let's say there's three positions, right? You have striker, left wing, right wing. And on a scale of 100, you have a 90, an 80, and a 70. Do you take that or do you take potentially three players that can all rotate, but they're all about a 79 to an 80? For me, I think the versatility is what defines some of Graham Potter's techniques when he's putting the team out there, but it's also extremely powerful when you have this season, Alzate coming on and you're like, okay, cool. Well he played right back. So this is where they're probably gonna go here. And then all of a sudden he's a central mid or he's playing far on the left wing and just being able to move people around. There's a lot of power in that and it can help mask what is not maybe your top tier skill, but your top tier ability to play multiple positions so for me I guess long long answer short I would rather have someone that can come in and play multiple positions Lilana is is one that you know if he's the if he's that center mid and he's running the Dale Stevens role minus the awful tackles from behind and the multiple passes backwards I think that you can keep them there and build around them or them building around Basuma who can kind of do a little bit of everything. But versatility would be the first priority for me. If we're bringing in attackers or wingers.
1: I, I think that Graham Potter's decision to let Anthony knock go on loan, has as sent out a signal, I'm not interested in wingers. So the, the we, we've got to get used to the Albion playing without a winger. What what we have seen this season with both Big Dan Byrne, Martin Montoya, Steve Alzate when he was playing uh, at full-back, um, and also I think it's, it's been especially noticeable since Tarek Lampty has broken into the team, is that we're playing with wing-backs who will get forwards, who will be providing um, the balls into the box. And if if you... If you are a bit of a nerd, and I am, um, and, and you look at uh, what creates goals, it, it's not crosses, it's cutbacks. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We we, we, we don't have the players of, of the ability of Manchester City or Liverpool to do it. But we are trying to move into um, a style of football whereby the, the, the fullbacks are effective wingbacks and they are putting in low balls into the six yard box for the likes of Trossard and Mope uh, to get on the end of uh, end of those balls to to score goals rather than our conventional way that we we've been brought up you know uh, let's face it as, a, as an albion fan I've been brought up on lower league football one of the reasons one of the many reasons why I worship Glenn Murray classic center forward at the back post uh, you know do, doing what he does superbly but Graham Potter is not part of that mindset. Graham Potter is uh, far more progressive than that. Uh, he, he's studied the data, um, as have other people at the club. And it's quite clear that he, with, uh, with Dan Ashworth, uh, have, have decided on a, on a style of play, which is going to mean that we as fans, I think, have to, to rethink the way that we, we interact with the Albin. It's, it's, it's different football and it's, and it's, and it's wingerless football.
0: I think that's fair. Um, So before we move on to looking at next season, just very quickly, uh, grading Graham Potter's first season. Uh, For me, it's a B, just a straight B, no plus, no minus. Um, I think he came in, I think he revolutionized and evolutionized the entire squad. Um, I think he made some very brave decisions, like you said, sending out knockout and players like that and saying these aren't the future for me. Um, But... There was, uh, you know, the only thing that's stopping me from going higher than a straight B was the fact that we did, you know, go three months without a win. Um, and the reason he's not any lower than a B was showing that, A, the first half of the year was some sublime stuff, and B, the second piece of the year after that, uh, you know, three months that it just wasn't working, we saw a pretty serious change in, in philosophy again from Graham in, in going to a more pragmatic grind out the point style, which is the reason for our incredible high amounts of draws. And we went on to then, you know, beat the points record. So uh, Kieran, great grading Graham Potter's first season thoughts? Um I I'd probably
1: go B minus. Uh, the reason why I'm not going higher is, is you know, we did go that long period of time without a win. Um at one one of the great things about going to a match is I wonder what the team is going to be today. And having a settled 11, I, I don't know whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, because if, if you look at, if you are a winning team, then the chances are you're going to be settled. We've seen that with Manchester United since uh, since the lockdown ended. Uh, you, you could pretty much name the Liverpool uh, starting 11 most weeks as well. same Manchester City slightly different in, in that uh, Pep is, is more of a tinkerer. Um, I, I've been delighted with Potterball. Uh, I've been delighted... Graham Potter, he just seems a thoroughly decent human being, and that's one of the things which I'm really proud about of being a fan of the Albion. If you take a look at our most recent managers, and you look at uh, you look at Graham, you look at Chris Hughton, even if you go back to Sammy Hippier, you know, no airs and graces about the Mosca Garcia. You know, the last the last manager who was controversial was Gus, um, and Gus had. Gus had huge pluses, but he also had huge minuses as well. So, you know, Graham Putters, a guy I'd really like to go out for a meal with, you know, and just listen to him. And to, to he's 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 got great values. And you know, let's not forget the the guy's lost both his parents this year, and he's not letting it distract him from his job. He's been incredibly professional. Uh, at the end of a match, I know that the one thing we're not going to get from Graham Potter is, is a snidey soundbite about the opposition or the referee. He, he, he conducts himself with dignity and actually that's the the qualities of Graham Potter are things that you'd like to um, align yourself with. And and that's great as a fan.
2: So you both said everything that I could have said, I think, especially speaking towards Graham Karen, because he does feel, he genuinely feels like a fantastic person that I, I want to sit with i want to introduce my wife to you know what i mean like my i wanted to hang out with my friends because he seems like such a great motivator and just a very level-headed person so i gave him a b plus so i'm the optimist here apparently you could see the puzzle coming together he took a lot of chances some of them were not good that happens i think that's a growing pain but i have kind of a weird rubric that's it's built into my head. And this is from the college football world. So whenever a coach takes over a new team, he's usually graded on a four-year scale. First year, you lose big. Second year, you lose close. Third year, you lose small or you win close. And then fourth, you win big. So we're never probably going to just shoot up to the top six. So that fourth year you can kind of eliminate. But for this season, him getting so many draws we had less losses we had the same amount of wins it is a sign of progress which is why i'm leaning towards the b plus and i think that next year you probably take that next step and it's going to be maybe it's not nine wins maybe it's 11 and maybe it's one less loss and just some more draws i think he's he's on the way so i'm i'm sticking with the b plus for my grade
0: yeah that's fair I, i'm not i i think that i think that all I think that we've come to a conclusion that somewhere in the B's is fair. And I think that's uh, I think that's definitely good and reflective of what is what is looking like a very promising future under him. Um so that's good. Uh moving on to next season, um, there is a whole lot of grey area. Uh we have had it announced that uh, the season will be starting, I think it's September twelfth, so there's very few weeks now between Um, this season and the next, uh, especially when you have all of the European competitions to be finished in August. Um, There will be no U.S. preseason tour, as I was deeply hoping. (laughs) Um, Who knows whether they'll ever come over here with the way we're being governed with the coronavirus. But um, in terms of the coronavirus, uh, how do you expect the the COVID-19 effect to affect the transfer market? Um, and this is both financially, so I suspect Kieran, you'll have a lot to say there, uh, and just in general of of people being willing to move move countries, move clubs in this in this time that we're in. Um, how do you how do you both see the transfer market evolving this year, uh, Kieran? We can start with you.
1: Uh, my view is that at, at the elite level. Uh, there will still be transfers for high fees. I don't think there'll be as many as we've seen in previous years. Um, but one of the things we need to concentrate on is the the nature of the ownership model of clubs. Um, if you are a uh, if you're a trophy asset, so therefore we're looking at Chelsea PSG, Manchester City to a certain extent the Albion, uh, you know because w- without Tony, bloom that we wouldn't be we, not only would we not be in the the premier league we i suspect we wouldn't even be in the championship um but that owners of that ilk who are in a position where they can put their hands into their pocket uh that th- those clubs can afford to buy uh now if you if you look at the the u.s owned clubs within the within the premier league so we're talking arsenal manchester united liverpool Um, they have broader issues to deal with. Uh, Fenway Sports Group have got to be very, very careful because they've just introduced uh, significant pay cuts at the Red Sox. So if if they do that and then uh, Red Sox fans see Liverpool spending £80 million on Jack Grealish, that's going to cause problems back home. So for Liverpool and for clubs with that particular business model, I, I expect it will be getting people like Adam Lallana, uh, Shaqiri, uh, and players of, you know, sort of squad players off the books, bringing through players like Jones and perhaps making one or two modest signings. Um, when it drops down to the level of the Albion, I don't think we will be spending £20 million on championship players the way we did last season. Uh, we, we we bought Neil Mope and Adam Webster... At top of the top of the market fees uh, at, at the time, um, and they, they weren't they weren't overpriced. But uh, I think if we were buying Adam Webster this season, we would be getting him for eight to ten million, and, and uh, Neil pay perhaps just a little a wee bit more. But uh, but the, the the selling clubs would be have to be more realistic in the prices that they're demanding. Uh, if the Albion are looking to sell players. Um, there's a restricted number of players, restricted number of teams that be wanting to take players off our hands. So, you know, it has been mooted that uh, Shane Duffy could be off to Celtic. I don't think we get a particularly big fee for him uh, as much as I've got, you know, I, 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 I'm a big Shane Duffy fan. Uh, But I think Celtic would a struggle to match his wages that he's on at the Albion uh, and B, they've not got the money to, to spend in the market either. So, I think if, if the Albion are selling, if we were looking to sell players for, you know, eight to ten million, we might be having to be accepting the accept three to four. Uh, the the big elephant in the room, I think, from our point of view, is Lewis Dunk. Uh, he is twenty eight, going on twenty nine. I, I think he would enhance the back four of a number of clubs in the top six. Uh, he, he'd certainly be good for Arsenal. Um, I think he'd be good for Chelsea. Uh, I could even see him playing a role at Manchester City because he has become a ball-playing centre half. Um, if if he was a year younger, I, I think we could still be getting forty to fifty million for him quite easily uh, if he wants to go you know, because a, a big club comes in and offers an opportunity. I, I think that would be an awkward issue for the Albion to try to to extract maximum value uh, because he's, for me, he he has been our player of the season. Um, why Gareth Southgate made his England career so short is beyond me. Uh, but I think a lot of it's due to the fact that he doesn't play for the right club.
0: Marty, thoughts? For, yeah,
2: Islands. for me, I, I don't know if I have a, a total informed point of view that isn't Kieran's from listening to The Price of Football in terms of what how it's going to affect the transfer market. My biggest question mark that I'm curious about and this might be another question for you, Kieran, so, so be ready. But how do we expect with how the virus has affected the lower-level teams from championship down, is the loan market, because we also had a lot of players on loan this year, is that going to be a harder situation for clubs like Brighton or bigger clubs even, where they're going to have to maybe pay towards those wages to get loans out because those lower league teams can't really afford even a portion of that salary to cover?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it, it will be an issue. Uh, I mean, David Weir, who's the club's loan manager, he he does a fantastic job uh, going up and down the country. I, I was actually on a Wigan Athletic podcast uh, on Saturday night. Uh, I, I seem to do an awful lot of podcasts these days. Um, and, and they were telling me that Jensen Weir, who is David's son, who we have just signed, uh, is 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 going to be amazing signing for us. Uh, I, I can see the Albion putting a lot of players out on loan again next season, and there will be a lot of takers because clubs in the lower leagues. Um, over half of the clubs in in League One and League Two didn't sign players for money last season. Um, that that half is going to become three quarters, I suspect. Uh, in the in the Championship, the overall net spend in the Championship was five million pounds. Uh, between the 24 clubs because there was very much a a one-out, one-in approach uh, and clubs such as Bristol City only signed players on the back of selling the likes of Adam Webster to us. Now, if they're going to sell Adam Webster for eight or nine million this season, then that means that they're going to have less money to spend as well. The lower league clubs also have the the, the big elephant in the room of, with matches taking place behind closed doors for at least the the first, first part of the season, those clubs that are already losing money are going to have those losses uh, accelerated um, and they're not going to be in a position to buy. You've, you've got to look at discretionary spending, which, which is a, it's a horrible economic phrase, I know, but uh, it, discretionary spending is ultimately something which you don't have to make in which you choose to do so. Um, club, clubs will not be spending money unless they have to. It will be very much a last resort uh, when it comes to transfer spend in, in outside the Premier League itself.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I can see that, you know, there's there's going to be a horrible drip down effect. Um, so I guess just to wrap, uh, final question, um, how do we see coronavirus affecting all the leaks next year? Um, do we think that behind closed doors will at some point lead to kind of half capacity, third capacity? Um, and if and if we do, um, you know, what does what does that mean for the teams in the lower leagues that, that's probably a question for you kieran in that is it more expensive to open up part of the ground or is it or is it more expensive to to keep it closed behind doors um and then in terms of the premier league how do we uh, figure out the scheduling and um, do we continue how we have been the last couple of weeks or do we kind of transition back to the 3 p.m kickoffs prior to that and keep everybody behind closed doors
1: um as, as far as the lower leagues are concerned uh, clubs will be desperate to open up because they they generate money from a variety of sources um, and they are far less dependent upon TV money. So therefore, it's essential that if they are to, to return to business, then they've got to have a paying audience. Otherwise, what's the point? Because if you're getting no money from TV, you'll be getting next to no money from sponsors because your sponsorship base tends to be local. And, you know, we're about to hit a huge recession here in the UK. We've been protected from it to a degree to date. So, so those clubs will be desperate to get fans into the grounds, as as will the players and managers. You know, you, you become a professional footballer to play in front of people, not, not to play a glorified training session is what we've had. As far as the Premier League is concerned, the Premier League has the benefit of the TV deals, which will protect it from not having to open up as quickly. Um, but... Yet the more I read, the, the there are more questions than answers. Um, apparently the Premier League has said that all players will get a 30 day break uh, from, in, in terms of football. Well, the, the Champions League and the Europa League are not due to, uh, to finish until around about the 21st and the 23rd of August. The Premier League is due to restart on the 12th of September. The, the numbers don't add up. Um, and at present, what we are seeing is uh, people just trying to avoid the question. Uh, footballers deserve a break. Uh, it'll be, um, and it, it's going to be a huge challenge for the football authorities deciding how they're going to work out next season. A sensible decision would be to scrap the Carabao Cup or, or to make it or to have, have the early rounds take place where, where you're playing just youth teams or th- some things of that nature, which to a certain extent uh, takes place anyway, as, as far as the Premier League is concerned. Um, but for the, for the lower league clubs, uh, th- they, they, they desperately need the money. Uh, for the Premier League players, uh, those who are going to be, you know, here we're talking, appreciate it's not all the clubs, but it is uh, you know, Manchester City in the Champions League, uh, we've got Chelsea, who are probably going to go out of the Champions League, but we've still got Wolves and Manchester United in the Europa League. Uh, they they can't be expected to play football twelve months of a the year, then go and play an awful lot of games in a in a shortened period of time for next year's Champions League and next year's Premier League, and then go straight into Euro twenty twenty one. It's it's just not feasible. So that that is something that needs to be addressed and i think that the the football club owners would rather nobody ask that particular question
0: <laughs> i feel like that's uh I feel like i hear that sentence a lot on your show there's <laughs> there's a, there's a <laughs> lot of things that owners and uh, and people would rather just not answer at all
1: <laughs> yeah well they they don't answer them to me that's for sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> um marty what are your thoughts on this scheduling do you would you like to keep it the way it is uh, you know one or two games a day or would you like to just go back to a Saturday and probably a lot of Tuesdays with the, with the kind of condensed fixture list.
2: Yeah, I think the condensed fixture list, assuming you can maintain that bubble for, for player and, and coach and manager safety, might be ideal. The thing that, that Kieran kind of alluded to, the fitness to the players is something I worry about, and the injuries that are almost no doubt going to stem from it, whether it be a small handful hopefully, minimal, or a lot more than that. And then the other part, which is you have closed doors and you're taking precautions. Maybe you're only partially open, but still that weird, and and I'm not a, a UK politics person, but the political aspect of the Premier League or La Liga or other European leagues having priority for a vaccine when it is developed. And kind of the weird feel of that, that's what that's the other shoe I'm waiting to drop, see to drop, and that and that kind of gives me an icky feeling. As far as scheduling, if they can have the set guidelines, if they can get the players rested, then sure. Let's do the condensed fixture list. Maybe do two weeks on, one week off, something like that, to, to retroactively try to get their their rest. I, I don't know if there's a correct answer. Uh, it, it's, I think... For the next two years, and this is not just Premier League, but for sports across the world, for two years, we're going to see the impact of this and having to play Tetris with schedules and different tournaments and different events, especially when you have, like you mentioned, the Europa or Champions League. And then in two years, it's going to be the World Cup in the winter. So like you have all these weird Tetris blocks you're trying to manage. So in the interim, I think, condensed schedule, ideally for me, two weeks on, one week off. And you should be able to still finish in the normal amount of time, maybe even earlier if possible. And with the five subs per game that they've announced they're going to have, you can maybe limit any issues with injuries.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think that... There is going to be a lot of uh, shifting around. I think Tetris is a good way of putting it. Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, experimentation going go on. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more questions and answers for a while. Um, but thank you both for coming on uh, and kind of reflecting on this pretty wild season. Um, and I'm sure that uh, I'll hope to try and get you both back on at some point in the future. Um, but thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for the invite. Thank you, good to meet
1: you, Marty.
2: Good to meet you too, Kieran.
0: Absolute All right. Pleasure. Have Have a uh, fantastic rest of the week and I guess enjoy the break, even though I feel like we've only just had a really long one.
1: (laughs) There's no break in football finance, sadly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Cheers, guys. Bye.